Hello and welcome to One Track Mind, a podcast about the real issues, forces and innovations shaping the future of sport. I'm your host, Sam Robertson. What does a good video game have to do with improving athlete performance? On the face of it, perhaps not much, but if we dig a little deeper into the science and design behind video games, we can see the incredible power that modern games have in facilitating learning through engaging the participant in a manner that is enjoyable and interactive. On this week's mini-episode, we welcome back Dr. Carl Woods to unpack some of the key principles that sports coaches can adapt from video game design to create performance enhancement opportunities for their athletes. Carl, thanks for joining us again for this mini-episode. No worries at all, mate. Real pleasure to be here. Now, as we know, much of the world at some point in the last 18 months or so has spent some time in lockdown. And I'm not sure about you, but uh, during the massive 112 consecutive day lockdown, I think that number's right, we experienced here in Melbourne in 2020, I did something I thought I perhaps would never do again as an adult, which was dust off the old PlayStation and revisit some video games. Did you do the same? Uh, I didn't, but I had a lot of friends that did. Yeah, absolutely. I didn't think it would happen. But uh, (laughs) anyway, I got a hold of a fantastic game called Red Dead Redemption, which is very much adults only, but it did blow me away in terms of the cinematics and the gameplay, of course. But also, uh, and I don't just say this after the fact, it's, it's ability to engage and it's a level of interactivity. And I guess maybe because I've had a, a 10, 15 year gap between uh, how much video games have improved in that time, it was a bit of a shock to me. So, but I'd like to say this was planned, but it wasn't. It was totally coincidental. But you and I, around about the same time, published a paper adapting some, some previous work uh, on a really interesting topic, which was proposing 13 principles of what makes a good video game and, and what that means for learning and, and education. And of course, we'll, we'll link in the episode notes a, a link to that paper and of course, uh, our own paper as well. But as the, author works, uh, as the author of this work points out, these principles could actually be applied to a number of different learning environments. And, and you and I, the purpose of our paper was to do that for sport and particularly sports coaching. So the premise being that video game designers do a, a very good job. Uh, I don't think it's, it's arguable at all. They do a very good job of engaging and creating enjoyment when it comes to learning in people of all ages. So we thought we'd go through some of these principles and provide some practical examples about how they transfer to sports performance yep let's let's jump in mate i um this is a a, a mini episode that i've been looking forward to given um uh, although i didn't dust off the playstation in the last uh lockdown i i was a bit of a gamer as a kid so these resonated quite a bit so yeah let's jump in i think we all were Uh, so the first four of these principles are classified Uh, into this group of empowered learners. So we're talking about athletes basically taking ownership or increasing the ownership over the design of key parts of their training program or the development program. And the first one to talk about is co-design. And what we mean by that is basically gamers being given the opportunity to impact what happens in their game experience rather than just consuming what the designer gives them, which is, of course, what we see in in movies and TV, those types of mediums. So there's a level of interactivity, and that allows them to at least uh, somewhat create the experience uh, that they want. How does that apply to sport, in particular sports coaching? Co-design for me, uh, I think in sport, really opens the door to things like shared decision-making, right? And and this this shared decision-making can take form uh, in lots of different ways. So it might be a, a coach working with players to co-design specific practice sessions 
uh, maybe even reviewing the effectiveness of, of practice sessions or, or a specific task after it, it's been done. And maybe even a, a really unique way is, is players perhaps even taking on responsibility for, for offering feedback to each other. Uh, and, and the coach simply monitors how that feedback's been, been delivered and, and interacted with. So really, I think this, this co-design principle in sport focuses more on a shared or, or distributed control on performance preparation, on an athlete's performance preparation. It doesn't just sit on the coach, it doesn't just sit on the athlete, but it sits in that relationship between the two. I think we're starting to see a real shift towards that in, in a number of sports, which is a, which is a real positive. Uh, and so that's a, a great one of evidence in practice already. Uh, number two is customise. So another feature of video games is is obviously the ability to do exactly that. People can customize the experience, and that could be just changing the difficulty level of a of a game, or or controlling the use of feedback to change what the gamer experiences. There's a whole heap of examples, obviously. Now in sport, I think this could work in a couple of ways. An obvious one is maybe making a drill easier if it's proving too difficult, or maybe vice versa. Uh, or in a team sports setting, maybe designing a drill in such a way that it provides value to participants of a range of different positions or ability levels. I think, you know, I think about some examples in team sports where a drill does a great job of engaging a midfield group heavily, but the forwards are left there standing in the cold. Yeah, agreed. I mean, you touched on it a bit then with um, with feedback. I think that's an important part of customise um, and, and customising practice sessions in sport. So, uh, I mean, another good example, a more specific example, I guess, could be a, a goal shooter in netball, perhaps practising their craft um, and, and maybe even mid-session. The coach offers some uh, suggestive guidance on what they might like to do in the in, in the practice session, and then the, the netball is free to customise. I guess the difficulty, if if they want to take on that feedback, if they want to use that feedback to make it harder, or, or perhaps make it easier, or even better, um, it might be the use of a, a bit of technology, you know, in itself. So some form of reflective practice through the use of like an LED screen or something like that that uh, that provides the athlete with real time feedback as the task's unfolding, and and they can then customise the difficulty of that practice session based on the feedback they're receiving yeah so the the distinction between those first two almost being one happens before and after and the second one is is very much during so uh, that's a it's a good one good couple to start off with Uh, number three is identity and in this case uh, this is a absolutely massive part of i think modern video games particularly these online ones whereby Participants essentially create a new identity uh, in a game that is, in some cases, completely different to how they are in in real life. Black Mirror, uh, some, of, some of our listeners would have seen the TV show. I think there's a really good example of this in, in that particular TV show where people are completely changing their lives based on the personas they develop in video games. Now, that's a tricky topic <laughs> and like it or loathe it, um, it is definitely testament to the, the good design of those of those games. And I think above all else, it shows investment on behalf of the participant, investment in what they're doing. So in sport, that's a, a really big thing. And sometimes I, I guess we we expect the people's, you know, as in athletes, identities, let's say as a leader, will just change and progress as they mature into their career. But we probably can't assume that. And we do need to create opportunities to specifically target uh, their identity, don't we? 
Yeah, for sure. Like I think this links really nicely to like a mentorship program, right? So, I mean, we often flag young junior players as, as potential future leaders of, um, of of some particular organization. But I guess that like what you were saying before there, I guess an important part is to provide them with opportunities and support to really flourish that uh, and grow that identity. So mentorship programs can be really advantageous in those situations. And that might be taking on a mentorship from, you know, a, a senior teammate that's already in a leadership position. Or maybe even, um, you know, a senior coach or, or other kind of um, a senior figure in the sports organisation that guides that junior player towards taking up with that identity and, and kind of what features of that, that identity might, might look like, whether that's taking responsibility for um, training standards or, or feedback standards or, or just good person standards around the, the sporting organisation and really living those rather than just kind of placing them on a pedestal and saying, right, you're... you're uh, you know, responsible for for leadership, actually providing them with really supportive um, guiding mentorships that, that can really help them progress into those next generation leaders of, of that sporting organisation. Mm, it's a good one. It's again, I think an example of an area that has uh, has got better, better in sport for sure uh, as a general rule. Number four is manipulation and distributed knowledge. Uh, these two could be almost considered as, as different, but they're, they're packaged together here. And and really in video games, it's it's talking about the participant controlling something external to their own body. And, and this control allows them to feel expanded and empowered in terms of how effective they are. And that's a bit of a mouthful. But if we think about that in a video game, uh, that could be as simple as having a racing car wheel instead of using a, an old controller or using your phone to track dance moves, uh, all sorts of different things which extend the person's body. But I think there's there's other parts of it in life as well uh, that we see, not just in games, you know, remote control of different gadgets we have. Uh, we're getting better at automating really menial tasks in our day-to-day life. And it's all about improving our effectiveness. And I think the same goes for sport. Yeah, most definitely. Two examples perhaps jump out to me mostly, one from an athlete's point of view and, and perhaps one even from a from a coach's point of view. And I guess I'll focus a little bit more on the, the distribution of knowledge. And I, I think from the athlete's point of view, they could really be encouraged to take on a role of a coach. I think particularly senior uh, senior players that might be transitioning perhaps uh, out of playing and, and into coaching. And, and by embodying that role of, of the coach and, and distributing their knowledge from an athlete to a coach's perspective, they're able to perhaps pick up different parts of, of what performance preparation in sport looks and feels like. So this might be you know designing a training activity, its intentions and its rules and, and adding in def- different constraints. But it may also mean them having to think on the fly, you know, change the design as the activity is going on because something's perhaps not working or players are doing something that perhaps they didn't anticipate nor really want. Um, so, so really distributing their knowledge, not just pre and post the event, but during the event uh, uh, as well that I think is quite important. And, and from a coach's perspective, you know, probably quite quite important in the current climate given um, given COVID and, and their effects financially on organisations. They mightn't be as resource rich in terms of personnel as they were in the past. And um, what they could subsequently do is reduce this reliance on specialised knowledge within organisations and distribute it across people. So you might have a development coach in a, in a football organisation who's not just responsible for the development of, of young players, but they may also take on a secondary role. And that secondary role might, might be like an opposition uh, analyst. So then they're distributing their knowledge across both development and, and opposition and game trends, which can, uh, I guess, enrich the organization. 
And that's a great example of turning a crisis into an opportunity. I think with this pandemic, it has uh, caused us to, to change the way we, we operate. We haven't had a choice in a lot of that. It's funny, I, I was thinking then, I, I gave a talk with Alice uh, Sweeting uh, the other day and we, we were talking about some other things that have happened in COVID, uh, like in golf, you know, you're not pulling the pin out uh, anymore and, and how that might, you know, that was done for safety reasons, but also it maybe speeds up play and, you know, having five substitutes in, in football instead of three, what does that do to the speed of the game and injury rates and things like that? Uh, I know we're getting a bit off topic, but it is, it is a good example of uh, not only taking advantage of the opportunity, a crisis to opportunity, but also just how one small change can have a large effect on, a, on an environment. Number five is well-ordered problems. And, and what we mean by this is not just starting with a, a level of difficulty in a problem and expanding from there, but also the knowledge that someone picks up on an earlier problem being relevant to a later problem. And this is a really tricky thing, and, and video games do this fantastically well. I mean, there's a, there's a storyline narrative component to this as well as, as a design component. And I think, you know, for any video game that starts with a very difficult challenge straight up is going to lose players fairly quickly. But also in order to get that engagement there's got to be that progression and it's not easy to cater for when you've got participants from a whole heap of different ages or ability levels and this is something that we still deal with in sport although not in not so much at the elite level when there's uh, quite a homogenous group of, of people at a similar age and similar ability level but uh, it's still relevant and the key thing with this for me is that the progression in problems has to be logical it's not just there for the sake of it it needs to tie into actual improvement and so this requires long-term planning, which is not always a strength of, of sporting coaches or organisations. What jumps out for me is I worked most recently with a, with a coach, a really wonderful coach, Jim Mackay, up at the Queensland Reds, and, and, and he links these well-ordered problems wonderfully into the design of game principles, particularly in, in attack for, for rugby union. So they establish these game principles uh, which relate to keeping the ball moving and, and fluidity. And then in practice sessions adding in varying problems of challenge to, to make it harder uh, for, for the players. But these problems are, are really sequentially added in. Like you said, it, it takes this long-term planning. All of a sudden, they don't just throw all these problems in at the players at once and the, the whole um, system behaviour falls down, but they progressively add in these problems. And this might be uh, challenging them to move the ball fast when they're playing against a heavily outnumbered opponent. Uh, might be minimising the width of the playing field. It might be adding time um, or, or, or temporal pressures to, to how fast they're able to move the ball. But these things are sequentially added in over time. So they're really encouraging the players to, to adapt to them rather than just throwing them in randomly um, uh, at, uh, at one particular stage. That may be important later on in the sequencing of these well-ordered problems, but in the early stages, it really focuses on adding in one or two really identifiable problems that the players can, can work towards and positively see that they're actually getting better and solving and then progressively increasing the challenge point of those as, uh, as, as the coach goes on. Number six is pleasantly frustrating, which... I, I'm not saying is my favourite of the 13 we're going through, but I think it's my favourite term. It's something that's uh, worked its way into my vernacular because I think it's it's really easy to understand in terms of video games, but also in sports coaching. And, and what we're talking about is here is setting a challenge for a, a learner, uh, whether it's a gamer or an athlete, that's just on the edge of, of their competence level. You know, just, it's, it's hard, but it's doable. 
and of course we know there's a uh, irrespective of which learning paradigm you kind of subscribe to we know that's it's a commonality across most of them and so in sport i mean we know that this is something that is is called out a little bit in our practice it's uh it's not something we can do all the time uh there's a general kind of consensus that it's not it's not something we want to have in every single session but whether it's a skill challenge or, or trying to get an athlete to hit that personal best time, it, it is something that's inherent in every sport. Yeah, it's also added its way into into my uh, vocab rather recently as well. I think it's wonderful. It, it really evokes um, a perfect sense of what, what we're trying to do uh, sometimes in practice. And these are challenges that are fun. You know, mo- most athletes at, at high-end levels are really competitive uh, individuals and, and they like being challenged. But the key with these these types of um, problems is that they offer just enough guidance that uh, that you're improving. It's it's not that you're going backwards, but each time you do it, you're getting a little bit a little bit further along. So for me, it's it's about safe uncertainty. It's it's about creating problems that are uncertain, but they're still um, emerging in a in an environment that's safe for the athletes to explore how how they might want to solve them. So it might be a a gymnast, for example learning a new routine, but not necessarily worrying about the landing, landing in a foam pit. So they don't necessarily have to consider, well, geez, if I try this in a different way, am I going to land a little bit funny? Am I, am I going to increase my likelihood of injury? Mitigating that altogether, taking that out altogether and landing in a, in a foam pit, which allows them to explore the, the movement uh, in the air without having to necessarily worry too much about the, um, the uncertainty of the landing. Yeah, it's a good example, the, the gymnast one. I like that. Uh, number seven, cycles of expertise. So we know that good games do a fantastic job of this. They have uh, opportunity to practice a skill or a challenge in a, in a game. They then master that and have some form of, uh, of test, whether it's a boss level or something else, and then they restart again. And they go to a, a new challenge or something that could be either harder or something completely different altogether. And, you know, this is something that is... Again, has a has a background in sport, but obviously used through through different language. I mean, periodization in a funny way, maybe more than the newer models of periodization rather than the old ones, is a little bit analogous to this. You know, where we're blocking or chunking up different pieces of training or learning and not doing it all at once. Because again, as we talked about in the last example, it is very hard to to work at that uh, at that really difficult level all of the time. It does take it out of the athletes physically and mentally. Yeah, you, you touched on it with periodization. Um, it's it's a it's a lot about practice variability here, isn't it? You know, it, it's not staying at one end of, uh, of of a difficulty spectrum and and just staying there. It's constantly varying uh, the uh, the stimulus, whether it be a, a problem in this instance or something perhaps more physical in, with regards to strength or conditioning that uh, that, that athletes are exposed to. So, it, it, I mean, I know you and I speak a little bit about it as as golf fans, but I mean, a, a nice example of this could be uh, encouraging a golfer to take on different courses of different levels of par. So some might be harder, some might be easier, not necessarily staying in that particular area, but constantly varying that difficulty. It might even be specific holes. It might be manipulating specific holes to make them harder or, or easier. But the point of it uh, here is that you're not staying in one level of comfort for the athlete. You're constantly taking them out of that point of comfort, getting them uncomfortable, and then perhaps getting them comfortable again. Number eight is information on demand and just in time. And a principle in video games, which is, I think, well entrenched across all all humans, is uh, about our inability to use lots of verbal information uh, or speaking or words when given to us out of context uh, and before we actually need to use it. Uh, we don't retain that particularly well. And I think in video games, they do a fantastic job of giving this information to participants 
just in time. So right before they use it in the game or, or on demand when they feel they need to use it. So there's that ability for the gamer to make the choice about when they want to pick up that information. And this to me is the exact reverse about traditional coaching in, in sport where it's at the discretion of the coach. And this is kind of flipping the model there uh, and, and putting the power in the hands of the gamer, in this case, the athlete. Definitely. So, you know, a, a nice example here could be, you know, in, in sports that have points associated with the creativity of tricks, you know. So I'm, I'm thinking snowboarding uh, or maybe even given the recent Olympics, you know, skateboarding could be a nice example here. So, you know, when, when learning to expand their their scoring capability in these types of sports, a coach might give a, a snowboarder or a skateboarder a little bit of, of information just before they go out to perform the trick, you know, maybe maybe a loose end or, or something that they could go and explore just before they, they go and practice the, um, uh, the the trick. And then maybe as the trick's going on, uh, the coach just stands back and observes and sees how the player is trying to, uh, try and, trying to build this trick or, or solve this particular problem. Uh, and then maybe as it's getting to a point just where it looks like it's starting to fall off and the athlete's starting to, to perhaps um, get a little disinterested or, or they're failing quite often at trying to, to land or perform this trick, the coach might provide a little bit more information, you know, just a little bit more of a, of a, of a bit of a guide that can help them kind of continue to, to establish the way of, of, of performing that trick. So it's, that's, that's that information just in time. Yeah, it's, it's, this one is, a, is near and dear to my heart. I, I think there's a massive opportunity for us to improve, to improve how we, we look at these types of scenarios in sport. You know, how do they, the timing of the feedback, as you talked about then, the type of feedback, uh, what's the short and long-term benefits in, in, with respect to learning about how the, the performer can validate that feedback and utilise it. Uh, I know it's going to get easier with, with new, new and better technology, but it's, it's an opportunity for the future for sure and, and now for that matter. Uh, number nine is fish tanks. Now, this is a term that has cropped up increasingly in the business world and even into academia recently. Uh, and for those that aren't familiar with the term, it's basically talking about a simplified environment outside of a, a normal environment, which in sport would be a competition, for example, and allowing someone to work on a simplified version of competition uh, with some of the, the more difficult or the more uh, complex components taken out. That's a little bit abstract in and of itself, but Carl, can you, you work that into uh, an applied example for us? Yeah, for sure. So this is all about practice task simplification and and perhaps even equipment modification. You know, so it, it might be a, a, a young tennis player that's struggling to use a, an adult-sized tennis racket, right? But clearly they need to learn to use a tennis racket to play the game. They might, uh, the, the coach may manipulate features of the racket, may change its length, uh, its, its grip, uh, the, the, the racket head size, they might change uh, the size of the tennis ball or the height of the net. The point being that they're keeping all that important stuff within the practice task itself, you know, things that you need to be able to play tennis, a racket, a ball and a net, but they're, they're scaling it relative to the, the, the capabilities of, of that particular athlete or that, that particular child at that point in their development. So they're preserving all of that important interaction and all that important information during the practice task. And another term that may be... Uh, a little bit different or a little bit unknown to some of our listeners is sandboxes. Again, this is another one that has worked its way definitely into academia. And these, in, co in contrast to fish tanks, are actually environments that feel exactly like the real world, but they're safe environments. They're places where people are free to learn without having to be concerned about making mistakes or making errors. And they provide opportunities for learning, but also innovation and, and creativity. And 
you know, this is something that uh, I suppose if you're hearing the term described for the first time, my initial thought the first time I heard this was uh, what a fantastic uh, opportunity to do something similar in, in sport. This really opens the door nicely to things like virtual reality, given the the speed at which that tech is is uh, is improving. You know, I, I think in, in sports like cricket or, or baseball, where you have to hit a, a moving object coming at you really fast, I, I think this this offers a brilliant example of being able to perform and, and learn to perform those particular actions, but in in safe environments. You know, like a, if you've got a young batter in baseball uh, who's struggling to hit a really fast pitch. Virtual reality might be a brilliant um, uh, environment to to practice in because you, you mitigate that likelihood of getting hit, getting hurt. You know that 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 fear, perhaps, um, and and you're able to still place the athlete in an environment that they can explore. Um, you preserve some of that key information movement that's that, that's important, but they do so in a way that that allows them that that freedom to to um, to play as most, I guess, good sandboxes do. Right? Yeah, exactly, and I think. The example in video games for that, which I didn't give at the start there, is the old tutorials that uh, people used to do it before they, they went into the, the main game and, uh, you know, having the opportunity to do that without losing a life or getting a game over sign coming up. But interestingly, th- this is quite in contrast to number 11, which is skills as strategies. And so it's interesting that these two uh, are on the list here uh, because when we talk about skills and strategies, we talk about people not particularly liking just practicing skills over and over again without seeing a real a real purpose to them or a real context to them. And I think that's interesting because in some sports, particularly those high volume sports, repetition is seen as necessary, and it's perhaps more well accepted that that you can or you do even need a large volume of skill to be successful which is maybe a good discussion point and a good debate for another another episode but in the term skills and strategies we're talking about making sure that people will either enjoy their learning and probably learn more when they are actually have an intent or an intention to the the skill training that they're doing or, or any form of training for that matter rather than just mindless repetition Definitely, you know, we we all know that that repetition is important, but perhaps it's repetition to a problem, right? Rather than just a, a discrete action as it as it sits. So, what might be really helpful here is for coaches to set scenarios in in practice sessions. You know, little little games within games that uh, that can really contextualise the importance of different strategies in those little phases of the game. You know, as a as a cricket fan, what what jumps out here is that. Um, you know, T20 games, T uh, T20 cricket games, they've they've really changed how how cricket has been played. But there's there's lots of little games within them. You know, like the last two overs of a T20 cricket game, that's when you can really, as the batting team, really optimize your your score. You you can start to hit big shots and exploit where the fielders aren't placed. Um, but as the bowling team, you can you can bowl really creatively. You can bowl slower balls and 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 fuller pitched balls and, and all these different balls to try to prevent their their scoring capability. So for coaches, they could set up practice scenarios, you know, like so one team, the batting team, you have 10 balls and you have to score 15 runs and and simply then stand back and, and see what emerges. Give the players the the freedom to strategize, the batting team the freedom to strategize how they may want to play that, the bowling team how they may want to play that. But really interestingly is you know, uh, a couple of dot balls where they don't, the batting team doesn't score anything uh, off, off the ball, that may change the strategies altogether. You know, it may, may change it in real time. But, but I think that the important part here is to consider these, this notion of games within games, that, that actions themselves 
aren't as important as perhaps practicing the problems or the scenarios that emerge within games. Mm, mm. And again, it's another example of of one that maybe flips the traditional coaching model on it on its head. I think we've had a couple of those today. Uh, that that again, video games have provided good evidence of. Mm. Last two, number 12 is system thinking, and this one does overlap with some of our previous episodes talking about complexity. It seems to be a theme running through the last couple of episodes. But in this particular case, we're talking about people learning and and probably enjoying and, and again, developing identity, which we talked about earlier on, when they see that they're part of a larger system uh, and that they're not by themselves. And in a video game, I think this has coincided with the emergence of these massive online or these massive uh, open world games where people actually are, are literally spending time exploring a, a virtual world. Uh, and we know that these, these aren't the only types of games that are popular, but they certainly are, are ones that have become more popular recently. Uh, and, and of course, they've sold a lot of copies and got a lot of engagement. Uh, Again, this is something we're always trying to improve in sport, but it's it's a really tricky one. Yeah, uh, could be because the Tour de France was just on, but but cycling's the example that that really pops out. You know, in a sport that is perhaps from a, an outsider's perspective looked at as as just being a, an individual sport within lots of other other cyclists, it's it's very much a, a strategy within a strategy, right? You know, uh, over these multi-stage races. These cyclists within these teams have to determine, you know, do we want to win this particular stage or go to try to win this particular stage or do we want to play this a little bit more strategically and think long-term? Perhaps if we don't finish first, we finished, you know, somewhere in the top 20, we're still able to score lots of points, which is going to help our long-term goal, but we're able to preserve some energy for perhaps stages later in the race that we think we can we can win and, and win pretty comfortably. So it's this this notion of, of thinking in the present, but also having somewhat of a, an awareness of what might be next, uh, this broader system of, of behaviour. And I, I think some, some of the best athletes and some of the best sports teams in the world are, are really good at doing that, you know, that they're able to play uh, the competition at that current point in time, but also continually evolve and keep adapting to what that competition can afford in the long term and actually be a really important driver for that evolving competition, not just reacting to it, but genuinely being, you know, proactive, being the one that changes how the, the, the competition is um, is played. So, yeah, I, I think at least the, some of the, the, the better coaches I've worked with in the past have this awareness of where they're at, but also this selective openness to where they, they, they want to go. And I say selective because... They're not closed off to possibilities. Again, using using a recent example, Olympics and relay teams selecting players and, and uh, selecting athletes rather, and and putting them in different legs of a, of a four by four hundred or four by one hundred to I guess optimize the likelihood of success for the broader system, not just the the athlete in that particular leg, but placing a fast athlete at the start and and perhaps the the next fastest at the end, or or perhaps changing it based upon who you think you might be coming up against. You're thinking about the bigger picture, not just about that that one instance. A couple of good examples there. Uh, we're up to number 13 and the last one, which is meaning as action image. Again, it's a little bit abstract. But it's, it's probably closely linked to identity, which we talked about earlier. But what, we, what we're referring to here is the ability of video games to construct people's experience through words and concepts that mean most when they're linked to perception and action and and it's interesting those terms but perception and action are there because we talk a lot about those in in sport in in different contexts 
Yeah, so an analogy I think can be a useful one for coaches here, anchoring meaning around words that, that, that are actually impactful for the athlete, for the, the developing performer, you know, not just, not, not just letting them, um, them go, but helping them uh, construct a bit of meaning behind what they're trying to do. So a coach of a, of a young cricket player that's learning to catch a ball might use an analogy like catch it like it's a hot potato. And what that does is, is it couples that action of catching a, a, a hot potato with actually performing it in real time. So instead of reaching out and grabbing for the ball, they might take it a little bit with softer hands, right? The point being that they're aligning that action with an analogy that makes sense to them, something that they can align with. I mean, a really common one in sport, in the strength room, in gym, it might be things like, you know, jump like you're a rocket, explode off the ground like it's hot, these types of things. But they're a way to help couple the athlete's movement to the, these important features of, uh, of their environment or like what you said um, earlier on, this notion of, of perception and action. It's a nice note to finish on. Gee, there's a lot in there that overlaps, isn't it, between how we learn to develop our athletes. And there is a skill acquisition element to, to a lot of those. And I think that's probably encompasses why you and I were so attracted to it. But it is, it is important and has implications for broader coaching as well. Absolutely. I mean, you've, you've spoken on it with, uh, with guests in previous episodes, but it really highlights that importance of, of looking outside of sport. You know, like there's lots of important things that we can, we can learn from how other disciplines embrace things like learning and behavior and, and skill that we can learn a lot from in sport if, if we're responsive to them. So it, it, it really, you know, encourages coaches to look beyond um, these, these traditional sporting texts, textbooks and, and, and start to, to interact with information elsewhere. Dr. Carl Woods, thanks once again for joining us on the show. No worries. That's it for this week's episode of One Track Mind. Join us next time where we'll be asking, life after sport, how can we help athletes transition? One Track Mind is brought to you by Track and Victoria University. Our host is Professor Sam Robertson, and our producer is Lara Chan Baker. That's me. If you care about these issues as much as we do, please support us by subscribing, leaving a review on iTunes, and recommending the show to a friend. It only takes a minute, but it makes all the difference. If you want more where this came from, follow us on Twitter at trackvu, on Instagram at track.vu, or just head to trackvu.com. While you're there, why not sign up for our newsletter? It's a regular dose of sports science insights from our leading team of researchers, with links to further reading on each episode topic. Thank you so much for listening to One Track Mind. We will see you soon.